Hello and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Jeanca Bouchard and guest Christopher Drynan sit down to recap notable trends and headlines in the Canadian ETF industry for Q3 2022. The Canadian ETF industry saw a strong third quarter of inflows at more than $5 billion. This was led by risk-off ETFs, more specifically in the cash alternative segment. Flows into ESG ETFs continue to stay positive, with more than $2 billion net inflows year-to-date. Our panel discusses why this is the case, despite weaker relative performance. Etienne and Christopher also discuss equity factor performance for the quarter, fixed income market movements, as well as provide an outlook for the rest of the year. Today's podcast was recorded on October 28, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello everyone and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. My name is Etienne Jean-Claude Bouchard, aka EJB, and I'm going to be your host today as usual for this episode of our podcast. It is very good to be back and recording one of these. It's been a crazy fall, extremely busy as I'm sure it has been for all of our listeners, as much on the advisor as on the investor side. We've seen quite a bit of volatility as September rolled around, so I'm sure there's lots of considerations going into portfolio management, asset allocation, and other considerations for uh, for your business or for your investments. Today, uh, we've got a great guest joining us. Um, we have Chris Drynan, who is an investment analyst on the ETF team here at Fidelity. Uh, Chris has uh, four years of industry experience. He has been with Fidelity for a few of those. Uh, from an educational background, uh, has a BCom from Dalhousie University, as well as an MSc, so Master's of Science in Financial Risk Management from the University of Toronto. Chris is also a CFA charter holder. And yeah, we're just very glad to have him to come and discuss uh, ETFs, uh, albeit, you know, you, you do a little bit of everything here, a jack of all trades on the ETF team. But uh, once again, Chris, thank you so much for joining us and happy to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great, great, perfect. So before we get into today's subject, which is uh, a Q3 e- uh, industry recap uh, for the e- Canadian ETF industry, something that we do every quarter to provide uh, to provide you, our audience, with some updates on industry flows, uh, industry trends from a uh, from an asset allocation perspective. Uh, we also do a bit of a factor update because that is our bread and butter here on the Fidelity Canada ETF team. Uh, so we will provide some updates there, comments on fixed income, also. Uh, so really nice packed show here before we once again get started. Uh, just a recap of our last episode, because I always like to do this just so, you know, if you missed it, uh, you can you know go back and listen to it on fidelity.ca or on your favorite podcast app. Uh, I had the chance to host uh, Fidelity District Vice President Gislain Maillet, and we talked, you know, basically getting his perspectives on how uh, the ETF industry has evolved from his perspective, working with advisors across the country and understanding how they've impl- implemented ETFs in their business, uh, how investors have positioned themselves using ETFs, difference versus active and passive, tons of great stuff. Once again, that is available on those previously mentioned uh, platforms. All right, Chris, 
let's jump into it. I'll start with a brief, uh, you know, flows overview, and then we'll get into some of the nitty gritties, if you will, of the, or the key highlights uh, from that perspective. Uh, so wrapping up Q3 of 2022, finishing September 30th, uh, you know, we're looking at year to date flows of about 23.5 billion in the Canadian ETF industry. Uh, for the quarter, we're looking at about 5.4 billion, uh, bringing total assets under management for the industry as a whole at about 315 billion, which is, once again, I think when you take all this into perspective, a really solid year considering the volatility we've seen. Um, you know, what's what's really caught my eye here, if you will, uh, first of all, for the quarter, the top three selling ETFs were all high interest savings ETFs. So uh, a, a kind of a flight to safety, if you will, from investors and advisors alike, uh, looking for cash-like cash alternatives in, this, in these periods of volatility. Um, really quite surprising. So the top three selling ETFs. Uh, in terms of an asset class perspective, a lot more buying of fixed income than equities. Uh, equities with about $780 billion in net new assets for the quarter about 4.3 billion for fixed income. So you're seeing a bit more of a dip buying opportunity there as yields have arisen. You know, we've seen obviously uh, a number of rate hikes this year. It seems like the bond market, if we look forward and not so much in the rear view mirror, excuse me, starting to offer up some, some more attractive uh, return profiles. A few last couple comments there, and then I'll get your perspectives on, on this just more broadly, and then we can dive deeper. Uh, if we look from a category perspective or strategy perspective, a few things that have really been strong this year and continued, I think, into the quarter, uh, ESG flows, albeit uh, many ESG mandates have actually lagged on the performance perspective relative to their broad benchmark indices, have actually pulled in a lot of flows. Uh, so positive, you know, more than a couple billion, uh, 2.3 approximately for the year, um, bringing that to a total AUM close to 10 billion. So really a space that's grown quite a bit with, you know, looking at, uh, the number of launches just in September alone, 15 new ESG ETFs came to came to market. So uh, really interesting to see once again, as performance has somewhat slowed on the flip side of that, a little bit of a contrarian move, if you will, uh, low volatility ETFs actually seeing outflows uh, so far year to date, which is really have, has been one of the best performing factors, which we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, so I'll leave it at that. Uh, Chris, is there anything that stuck out to you? Uh, anything that I've mentioned or something that I did forget to mention that, that might have caught your eye? No, similar to you, from a year-to-date perspective, I think the most impressive thing has really been the resilience of flows for ETFs in Canada. Despite the market turbulence we've seen, June has been the only month this year and in the last three years where ETF flows have actually experienced outflows. The other standout to me that you also mentioned is fixed income flows. They're actually very much catching up to equity flows. Mm -hmm. only roughly half a billion behind on a year-to-date basis. And fixed income performance has really struggled, but advisors and DIY investors both seem to be looking ahead to where they see fixed income going from here, with yields potentially peaking soon or maybe having peaked. It also kind of pushes back on the notion that ETFs are kind of a purely passive equity play like the SPY. Many fixed yep. income ETFs, including Jeff Moore, Michael Plage's mandates here at Fidelity, are actually actively managed. And then for Q3, it's a similar story. It's impressively resilient flows given the market environment. But on the flip side of what we we're saying about not all ETFs being passive equity products, it's interesting to see that a lot of the bulk of the outflows seem to be coming from those passively managed cap weighted equity products. Interesting. No, that's I think that's that's really good points with regards to fixed income, because 
going into I guess all the way up until like mid mid of the mid part of the year, it seemed like equities were really leading right on flows, and I think maybe uh, the narratives change now that we've seen such a big move in in rates. Um, you know, might be time time to start looking at at uh, at opportunities there of rebalancing or you know I think what we've seen also, and this is also just from uh, stuff that we've done with with advisors over the years, you know, tax loss selling, right? Like when is the last time you were able to take a, a tax loss on bonds? It's been a while. Uh, so I think there's also been a lot of rotation, right? So and I think that that plays into the passive versus active, given there's more options out there now on the active side. There, you know, there could be, uh, you know, people looking to rotate out of an index based solution, which is down heavily this year because it's generally longer duration, higher credit quality, and then rotating into something maybe a bit more flexible. Um, I don't know if that's uh, a trend that you've identified, but there are definitely those the majority of assets in fixed income in Canada remain in those kind of passive aggregate bond solutions, correct? Yeah. And even if yields haven't necessarily peaked here, if you don't try to necessarily time it perfectly, yields two years from now will likely be lower than where they are today, mm-hmm. which will still be a positive outcome for those who do end up buying fixed income products here. No, absolutely. And, you know, you look at, say, uh, you mentioned it earlier, a mandate that we have here, Fidelity, uh, Global Core Plus Bond ETF, for example, managed by Jeff Moore and Michael Plage, as of the end of September, is yielding about 7.6% with a duration of five years. So if you Think about it in a very simple way. And you can take any bond mandate that you have in your portfolio, look at the yield, look at the duration. And, you know, you could say over the next, for example, five years, we expect to generate about 35% because of that 7.5% yield. The timing of those returns, nobody knows. But like you said, if you're not trying to perfectly time it, it's a good time to be picking that up type thing. Um, so, um, yeah, really, really interesting on that front. And and I'm sure we'll have a chance to, to come back to that. On the factor side, how would, do you find it surprising that low volatility is not getting a bit more flows? I mean, low volatility is done incredibly well, and it does continue to do really well. But from a valuation perspective, low vol in virtually every market on a price to earnings and a price to book basis is getting rather expensive. So hmm. it could be people just taking their gains and expecting it to performance to kind of lag after. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because. Uh, you know, low volatility tends to do well in those kind of late cycle recessionary mm-hmm. environments. So it's done well this year. But like you mentioned, it's getting expensive to buy defense. Right. Yeah. So if you look at some of those sectors like consumer staples, utilities, uh, to a certain extent, some of the telecoms, I'm not, I'm not talking comm services in general, because as we see, as we saw, like yesterday, for example, we're October 28th, uh, we've seen uh, companies like uh, for example, Facebook, which are part of the comm services sectors now. So important to differentiate that it's not exactly what it used to be. Uh, and we've seen, you know, some volatility there with, with some big misses on the on the on the tech side, but actually falls into that sector. But anyways, I'm, di- I'm, di- I'm diverting from the point here. But all that to say that low vol has done quite well. And historically, you know, if we look at like value, which did really well to start the year, you saw flows coming in as those trailing 12 month performance numbers were really good. Do you think that might also mean that there may be a bit of return chasing next year with low vol? Or is that, you know, too little, too late type thing? Yeah, potentially. There always seems to be return chasing, especially with factors. But value is the worst performing factor, for example, of um, Q3. So if we expect kind of like peaks and troughs similarly through a cycle of that factors kind of follow, 
maybe low vol here is getting too expensive and maybe will fall down like value did and value is currently experiencing outflows broadly. So maybe low vol has a similar kind of future ahead of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's, that's definitely, I mean, interesting to, we're going to, I mean, well, only time will tell. Um, next question for you. What factors do you, do you like going forward? Cause now we talked about low vol, right? We talked about value, uh, which value t- typically doesn't do too well as we go into that late cycle environment where growth slows, you know, those companies are a bit more sensitive to the macro environment. Their margins are a bit more, uh, or, you know, h- higher standard deviation on their margins and their earnings. So which factors, you know, do you find could be in focus as we head for Q4 and then potentially say the start of next year? I think the two factors that I'm kind of most interested in for Q4 and for early next year would be high quality and momentum. So high quality, it generally tends to do well in the late stage phase of the business cycle. And Mm -hmm. it's incredibly cheap right now, especially in Canada and in the US on a price to earnings basis. And if we think of inflation and we think of this inflation as being rather sticky, these companies are likely the companies that are most able to pass on the increases in mm-hmm. prices to the end consumer. And then for momentum, as I mentioned before, it, it was the best performing factor in Q3. And I still expect momentum to have substantial room to continue to outperform for a few reasons. First, it generally, like high quality, tends to outperform in the late stage phase of the business cycle which I think most market participants would agree that we're in, at least here in Canada. Second, by all accounts, it's incredibly cheap on a price to earnings and price to book basis. And historically, there's been pretty substantial outperformance of the market over the one and even five-year periods when the factor is as cheap as it currently is. Hmm. Then lastly, momentum tends to do well when inflation is either increasing or decreasing. And I don't really think that many people are expecting momentum to necessarily stay here and not increase or decrease from here for a protracted period of time. So all of these things kind of make it like a perfect storm for momentum to potentially be bought cheaply and held. And we've seen this play out successfully over the last few months for those who have purchased it. Interesting. Because, you know, I think often momentum gets intertwined or, you know, there's a misconception that it's growth it's not necessarily the case, right? Because as you mentioned right now, it seems like it's fairly cheap while historically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think momentum as a factor generally trades at a slight premium to the broad market, right? Like you pay a bit more to get companies that are in, you know, at a positive trajectory, if you will, uh, on, on the earning side, on the price side. Uh, how are they, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but you know, how are they positioned right now? And kind of why is it cheap? Is there because they, you know, it's, it's incorporated sectors that that have done well, that were kind of like in the value side, or is, you know, kind of just break that down for us a little bit on positioning and and maybe uh, why it's so cheap type thing. There's kind of a higher quality bias right now to momentum and high quality has started to pick up with respect to performance. And then for the growth perception of momentum, growth stocks did incredibly well over the last decade plus in the recovery after the financial crisis, growth stocks kind of led the market. Even in the latter phases of it, we think of how well the FANG stocks did. Mm -hmm. So when you're screening for price momentum primarily, you're going to end up screening for what's done best. And in that market, it was growth stocks. And in this market, it's not growth stocks. Interesting. So it it is kind of like a chameleon factor, more or less, right? It's going to 
to to on a slight delay, right? Because we like, for example, in our momentum strategies, we rebalance quarterly. Some is even monthly, some semi-annually, et cetera. But you're still updating that to reflect what's doing well. And so it's dependent on what's done well in the past 12 months, more or less. Uh, so like you mentioned, maybe quality. Probably, there's probably a little bit of a low vol tilt to a certain extent also. Um, so that's interesting to, to note because I think, once again, that that whole narrative that it's growth, well, that's only because from like 2016 to 2021, that's what had done well, right? And so uh, interesting to uh, to note. And, and also to mention to anybody listening on the call that's considering a momentum strategy, make sure to know what you own because not all momentum strategies are the same. The methodologies can be very different. Um, so, and, and the beautiful thing about factor investing is that it's very transparent. So reach out to whomever you work with, whether it's Fidelity or another firm on the factor side to understand what you're buying. Um, and um, and yeah, because we have seen sometimes where like you think you're buying a value ETF and actually you're buying a more growth tilted ETF just because it says it in the name. So be careful out there. Uh, so that's great. What factors you like going forward? I, th- I like that quality momentum. Uh, we've done a lot of work on, on on both of those also on our side and kind of understanding that as earnings revisions come down uh, and you see a bit more volatility on the earnings side, it tends to favor those with more stable margins uh, and just uh, just wider free cash flow margins in general, so which is which is much like quality. Let's shift it over to, 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 to bond land and fixed income uh, asset classes, which pretty much we're in line for the worst calendar year in history for any of the aggregate bond indices, whether it's the US, Canada, and or, or, or uh, globally. What's, I mean, we know what the issue's been, <laughs> raising rates. Uh, spreads are pretty much at the, his, like a historical average. So that hasn't really been what's led the downturn there. It's mostly based on, on rates. We had another big sell-off in September. Are there any ETFs that you know, we can use potentially to mitigate some of this? What are some of the options out there for advisors, either looking to continue to protect or like reduce duration or, you know, position themselves like that, or to say, okay, I'm ready to to look forward, because there is an opportunity, like we mentioned in the offset. So what's your what's your take on bonds, basically? Yeah, for sure. So while broadly, September was bad for fixed income, it was also bad for equities. There were yeah, pockets. <laughs> There were pockets of fixed income that provided significantly more downside protection than equities would have. For example, while both the S&P and TSX were down roughly 4% or more, Fidelity's Canadian short-term corporate bond ETF was only down 0.2%. And to your point, reducing duration is potentially a good strategy if you're worried about yields changing. And then Fidelity's systematic Canadian bond index ETF was only down roughly half a percent. So while there's been a lot of talk about diversification benefits breaking down between equities and fixed income lately as correlations have turned positive between the asset classes, there's still places like the two Fidelity ETFs I just mentioned that have managed to offer pretty substantial downside protection. Mm-hmm. That's really, that's such a good point, Chris, because I think that's really where the pain stems from, right? Because usually when your equities are selling off, your bonds are there to help you. Uh, they haven't been there this year. And I think, uh, you know, so you mentioned two mandates that did well in September. So maybe, you know, it feels like a lot of the worst is behind us, right? Because you're getting these bigger moves in yields, but like say moving from, let's say 4% to 5% on say on the 10 year, if that happens, is a lot easier to digest than moving from zero to 1%, right? Because on the percent appreciation is much different. So the further we go up, the less sensitive your portfolios will be to moves in rates. And that's just simple math. So 
to a certain point that, you know, the yield we're able to generate now. So if like on the US ag, we're close to 5% as of recording of this podcast, that's, that's can offset a lot of the moves now. Um, so going forward, um, you know, even if the curve doesn't shift anymore, so if it goes up, maybe you get a bit more volatility downside. If it shifts down, which is another alternative, which we're not talking about as a, a pivot, if you will, from central banks going a bit more dovish, you know, or like we saw in Canada this week, uh, you know, we're recording the 20th of October, the Bank of Canada hiked 50 basis points, which is, if you don't consider what was expected, is probably not so good for the bond market. The reality is the market was pricing in 75 basis points. So you actually saw a massive rally. Um, so I think, you know, there's less and less, the further we go down, the, there's less and less risk to fixed income investing, not only because you're being compensated, but just because uh, price changes will, will, will slow, if you will. So... Um, definitely, uh, one thing to, to consider there again, and we know we've mentioned multiple times already. One thing I want to swing back to, and we mentioned it in the flows, but I want to take a bit more time to, to, to break it down a little bit. ESG mandates and, you know, so environmental, social governance characteristics being implemented in portfolio management, the flows for those types of thematic ETFs have been really sticky this year. What is your explanation for that? So I think first, it's probably useful to address the ESG underperformance and kind of where it's come from. And a lot of this can be attributed to tech sector underperformance and oil and gas outperformance. So ESG funds are typically more heavily weighted in tech due to a belief that the sector is more environmentally friendly. And that overweight dragged performance as tech, as we were referring to earlier, has done Mm -hmm. rather poorly year to date. And then ESG funds being typically underweight oil and gas, and we we know that oil and gas has done fairly well this year, especially after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And even if it's come down somewhat more recently, this underweight exposure relative to some broad market benchmarks has dragged relative performance. But then to your point, despite a difficult year for performance, ESG funds have had fairly resilient or sticky flows. And I think this could be probably explained in two reasons. So the first being ESG investors will likely understand that this market, for the reasons we just outlined, has been uncharacteristically difficult for ESG products. Mm -hmm. If we assume kind of basic mean reversion, the specific factors that have been hurting this category may or are likely to ease in the future. And then the second core reason ESG investors are generally likely to be more able to handle volatility. ESG investors tend to be younger with longer term investment horizons, and they also may be more willing to tolerate volatility because they're more focused on impact instead of exclusively on returns. They're aligned with the companies these funds hold on more of a fundamental level. And all of this really allows these investors to kind of weather the storm, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Wow, those, those are two great points. And, you know, the last one that you mentioned with regards to just the average age of like unit holders for ESG funds and ETFs has got to be lo- lower than the average fund for sure. I, I never considered that because to me, it was more the other point you mentioned, which is uh, once an ad- investor aligns themselves from a fundamental like value on, you know, for, for, for as, as a human being, like I care about the environment, I care about equal pay, uh, you know, corporate diversity. Uh, things like that, you kind of are able to accept short-term underperformance because, you know, there's another aspect to it. There's a there's a connection to it. So it's it's more of an, a, a behavioral bias that is a positive, posi- uh, positive behavioral bias towards ESG investing. And that's 
really been, uh, I think the reason why, you know, flows have been so positive. It's not necessarily there's been a ton, like a ton of inflows. It's just very little outflows, right? So the net on the net basis looks really good. And this is something that a lot of advisors I've been working with have echoed that, you know, albeit it's maybe one of the, I guess, uh, not the not the best looking lines on the statements this year. It's not the one that's getting pointed out, right? Yeah. So it's it's it. There's other stuff that's more annoying, if you will, to investors like bonds. Um, one of the uh, the the great things about ESG uh, is I think we're in the early stages, right? Like we're still maybe in the second, third, maybe fourth inning of like the possibilities out there. Um, do you see this space evolving into, cause right now on the ETF side, especially, it seems like a lot of the strategies available out there are fairly simple, kind of like screening out, you know, using, uh, ESG characteristics, either from a firm like MSCI or, you know, S and P Dow Jones, or it could be any other index provider that has ESG ratings and screening out the bad ones and keeping the good ones without necessarily having other types of ESG investing, like more thematic or so like, for example, like water and waste or low CO2 emissions. That's more on the thematic side. And then you also have active impact investing where an active manager can invest, like basically their mandate being, I'm going to talk to the the board of these companies, try to get them to buy into sustainability. Do you see evolution in this space coming from active management maybe or more niche products going away from the broader screening? Yeah, for sure. And I think thematic ETFs even beyond ESG has been a big theme, especially in Canada with respect to fund launches. Mm-hmm. And I think for ESG, it is a theme and it will continue to be a theme that grows. And then on the side of engaging with management of companies, of portfolio companies, I think that will eventually be embedded in virtually every asset manager's core investment process, engaging mm-hmm. with the management teams on ESG principles. So ESG will eventually, I would assume, kind of go through all facets of the investment making decision process and the active management process. Great. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. No, I think it's going to be an interesting category as we move forward. I mean, we, you would think that in, you mentioned oil and gas earlier and energy and the energy sector being kind of an, un, a common underweight there. That's something that, you know, there's going to be climate solutions that come from energy companies. Like, I think that's going to be a very interesting development as we move forward is that, you know, energy might not be the enemy that we once thought it was to the environment, but actually with their resources are able to contribute to more, you know, renewable fossil fuels or things like that. Anyways, I'm diverting once again, but uh, it's going to be an interesting thing to follow. One of the last things I wanted to talk about, Chris, and this is something, you know, obviously Fidelity now we've entered kind of this space on the crypto side with we have, you know, our own Bitcoin and Ethereum ETF flows this year as of the end of September for crypto asset related ETFs is flat like it's it's minus 22 million which is a drop in the bucket considering last year there was more than 3 billion in net new assets created in those portfolios when they were launched because they did most of them come out you know a, a year and a half two years ago where do you see this going is is the volatility that we've seen this year has just really been the drag there or is just maybe investors are are have less appetite for for that asset in general I think there was this broad belief that crypto might be a hedge to inflation. And I think that investment thesis specifically hasn't necessarily panned out in this exact environment. But I think there continues to be innovation in this space and there continues to be fund launch trying fund launches trying to capture or invest in companies that are innovating in this space. And I think I honestly don't even know what the crypto landscape will look like in 10 years because 
I don't think 10 years ago I would have expected Ethereum or Dogecoin <laughs> or anything like that to begin with. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a good point because I think it was a really big growth uh, area of the of the ETF industry, right? And we were talking about it last year as kind of this new asset class pretty much just coming to, to market. And um, anyways, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if, if prices stabilize. Maybe all of a sudden you get a bit more appetite because like you said, that whole inflation hedge story hasn't truly panned out right unfortunately for for cryptocurrency investors but um but nonetheless look chris we're already at 27 minutes we're pretty much at time uh i've got nothing else for our audience here just to say uh i hope everybody has a great rest of the year uh we're looking forward to to seeing everyone in person for the advisor community for investors obviously stay in touch with our podcast we're going to try to do another episode or two before the end of the year on other subjects but all in all it was great to have you on man it was happy to have you come back on the show if you're willing uh but i'll leave you uh i'll let you finish off with any final thoughts no yeah thanks for having me at Sen. and yeah it was great and everyone have a great rest of the year awesome thanks guys thank you for joining us have a good one thanks for listening to the fidelity etf exchange powered by fidelity connects Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again. See you next time.